Well, some conversations you don't quickly forget. And some evangelistic conversations you don't quickly forget. A conversation I had with a friend about the gospel, about the message of Christianity a, a while back. It took a turn I wasn't expecting in that time. We were talking about the gospel. He considered himself to be an agnostic. And he, he received a lot of the Christian message in, in a way that he affirmed, well, that sounds good. You know, Dave, if, if, if the gospel, if Jesus makes you a better husband, a better person, that's great. I'm happy for you. Happy you found what you needed to find to live a happy life and to be a better person. And trying to direct that conversation, well, that, yeah, that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is, here's the truth about God, what he's done in Jesus. Here's the truth about us, that we're sinful. We need to be forgiven of our sins. God will judge us for our sins. He is right to judge us for our sins. He's holy, like we just sang. And you need to turn and trust in Jesus if you are to find forgiveness before God. If you are to survive his judgment, it's only found by repenting and believing in Jesus. And quickly, the conversation took turn. He was, he was offended at the idea that God would judge him. And I won't forget what he said to me in response. He said, if God is going to judge me for my sin, then God is petty and I want nothing to do with him. Now he's, the Lord's still giving him life. He might even listen to this sermon later. And I pray that he does repent. God opens up his eyes. But he was offended at the idea that his sin is a big deal before God, such a big deal that God would judge him, and that was the stumbling block for him in that moment. I think it begs the question, how big of a deal is sin? Is sin really that big of a deal? I mean, after all, nobody's perfect, everybody messes up, everybody has good intentions so far as we can tell, right? We think we intend to do well, we just fall short, that's the message of the world at least. But how big of a deal is sin? Well, in the book of Genesis we find the answer to this question is we consider the days of Noah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We see what God thinks about sin. We see God's actions towards sinful people. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We're continuing on in our sermon series this morning in the book of Genesis. And here we see a portion of Genesis leading up to the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. Let me read all of this section for us as we begin our time. Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. For the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we've made our way through the book of Genesis, we've seen that Genesis is a book of generations. 
The narrator of Genesis, Moses, has an intentional structure throughout the book, marking off ten different generations. And two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago now, chapter five, we uh, started off the generation of Adam. And the lineage of Adam through his son, Seth. And this portion of chapter six finishes off that section of Adam's generation. In chapter 5, we saw God blessing Adam's generation through his son, Seth. Uh, They were given long life. Uh, They were given descendants. God was blessing them. So there there was certainly joy that God was so graciously giving to them. But there was also pain because we kept seeing the spread of death time and time. Again, the descendants of Adam dying one after another. We saw the spread of death and coming from the curse of sin in chapter 5. And here in chapter 6, we see how much sin had actually spread at that time. We see a world filled with disobedience to God. We see the wickedness of humanity in these first eight verses of chapter 6. And against that dark backdrop, as we have seen time and time again in the book of Genesis, we see a glimmer of hope from the Lord. God graciously at work in a dark and sinful and wicked world. Well, as we make our way through this section of Genesis, we are going to consider God's grace through judgment. We see God's judgment in this section of chapter 6. Don't miss his grace. Even in the judgment, don't miss the grace of the Lord. As we look at this passage this morning, what I want us to see are three considerations of God's judgment and grace. That's our outline this morning. Three considerations of God's judgment And grace, the first consideration we find in verses 1 through 4, God will not allow wickedness to endure. It's the first consideration in verses 1 through 4, God will not allow wickedness to endure. In these first four verses of chapter 6, we find some of the most challenging verses in the book of Genesis to interpret. So you may have read through this earlier in in the week. Uh, Pastor Johnny looked at me on Tuesday and said, I'm interested to see what you do with this. And I said, I am too. Uh, there's a lot here in these first four verses. So you may have read through it earlier in the week and said, what is going on here with the sons of God and the daughters of men? There in verse 2, what is going on? What is this 120 years? In verse 3, who are these Nephilim? In verse 4, they sound really cool, but who are they? And there's really no shortage of disagreement amongst biblical scholars and even the commentaries I consulted this week. There are different camps as to what exactly is going on here. Now, it's important to note that these first four verses are not the main focus of this passage. But that doesn't mean you should skip over it. It is still important to look at each verse. And that's why we think expositional preaching is a good thing for our church. We deal with every verse. Some of the hard-to-understand verses we still spend time in. And it makes it clear to us that studying the Bible, it involves hard work. If we want to know God's Word, we must not be lazy. We have to give ourselves to it. And we have a chance corporately today to give ourselves to try to understand the Word of God. And even with that, while some of the details that, that may have been clear to the original audience with Moses that may seem unclear to us, the main idea of what's happening in this passage, it is clear. We see the story moving forward in these first eight verses. So so let's dive in here together. The first question we arrive at in verses 1 and 2. Who are these sons of God and daughters of man? I I think these first four verses, the way we have to approach them, is they're looking back to chapter 5. This is part of the generation that began in chapter 5-1. So this is one unit, 5-1 through 6 
8. So I understand these first four verses to be a summary of the line of Seth from chapter 5. The sons of God referenced here, in light of that, I think are the blessed line of Seth. Sons of God, descendants of Seth, that's the godly line. Now remember that, that Seth was provided by God to Adam and Eve to continue a blessed lineage after one of their sons, Cain, murdered the other son, Abel. Cain was the cursed lineage. And God was so gracious to provide Seth, another son, a, a godly line through whom the promised serpent crusher of chapter 3, verse 15, he would come through this godly line. So if we continue and think about it in light of, of this, uh, this godly line from Seth, and again, this phrase, sons of God, sometimes it is interpreted angels, and in fact, most of the times interpreted angels in the Old Testament. I'm not going to get into every viewpoint on this, but there are times when sons of God is referencing God's people, those who know the Lord, worshipers of God. And I think this is best understood here as Seth's line, the people who call upon the name of the Lord. Now verse 2 continues on, these sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took any wives that they chose. So if the sons of God are, are Seth's descendants, the daughters of man were descendants of Cain. Godly line, ungodly line. So, so belonging to the ungodly line, the cursed lineage, these descendants of Seth looked and they saw something that was attractive. The sin in view here is that the descendants of Seth, the godly line, were marrying in the ungodly line. Not marrying those who worship God, not marrying those who share the same faith in God. So here, true worshipers starting to marry the daughters of men, those who were not true worshipers. Now, I believe the original audience would have picked up on this theme quickly. This call to not marry outside the nation of Israel, that a worshiper of God was only to marry another worshiper of God. We thought about this when we read through the, we studied the book of Nehemiah. We saw one of Nehemiah's reforms, one of the major reforms was to stop the intermarrying and that to, to uphold God's commandment that a worshiper of the one true God should only marry another worshiper. In verse 2, what's highlighted here is the motivation. Why did these sons of God, why did they marry outside of their line? Well, look at what we see there in verse 2 as the motivation. The daughters of men, they were attractive. They looked good. They, they, were, they were pretty. They were pleasing to the eyes. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the temptation in the garden in Eden? Think about those two, two words, saw and took. We saw both those words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve saw the forbidden fruit. She saw it was desirable, pleasing to the eyes. She took it and ate. And we see those same two words here in chapter 6. So the sons of God, they were choosing what was pleasing to the eyes. They, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, any that they chose. They were choosing to oh, disobey God, choosing to rebel against him and oppose his will. Now, whoever these sons of God and daughters of men are, it is clear in this passage they were not to be marrying and producing offspring. Whatever was happening was contributing to the spread of wickedness on earth. And this spread of wickedness, it provoked God's judgment. Look there in verse 3. We see God pronouncing his judgment. God is a judge. He is the judge. 
it is right for him to judge sin. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Another interpretive challenge, what does this 120 years mean? Some think that that means that, that God's judgment would decrease the lifespan of people. That we have seen already people that were living 900 years plus. This judgment was that the lifespan was going to be shorter. And that could be what's being referenced here. I mean, we certainly see after the flood, these long lifespans are, are decreasing significantly. We also see after the flood that people lived longer than 120 years. Shem, Noah's uh, son, lived longer than that. Abraham lived longer than that. Isaac lived longer than that. It, it may not have been a, a, steadf- a tight rule right there in that moment. No one's going to surpass that. It might have been a gradual decreasing. We're not exactly sure. I tend to lean more towards understanding this 120-year period as a warning of the coming judgment of the flood. 120 years, and God is going to judge the earth. Three generations, 40 times three, that God has 120 years, a period of time. He will wait patiently, but eventually he will send his wrath and his judgment down to judge sinful man, indeed all the earth. Disobedience to God was spreading. That's what we clearly see here. Sin was spreading, the wickedness of humanity spreading. What we also see clearly, God was intervening He was putting a limit on the spread of wickedness. You may hear judgment sometimes and think, wow, that is really harsh, but don't miss the grace in God's judgment. God always brings grace through his judgment. He would put a limit on the extent of wickedness. Wickedness would not win the day. Darkness would not win. God would not allow wickedness to endure forever. Verse 4, another interpretive challenge. Who are the Nephilim? So I I think, again, we've got lots of a few different interpretations on who this group is. I think clearly this is not the same group as the sons of God there in verse 2. The language in verse 4, surrounding the Nephilim, we find the phrases, in those days and also afterward, which transitions towards another group. And we get a clue at the end of verse 4 that these are the mighty men. They're, They're mighty warriors. Now we see this word Nephilim only one other time in Scripture. And Moses uses this again in the Pentateuch in another place in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. The Nephilim there are a reference, it's the only other place in the Bible, reference in the context of the spies bringing back a report of a group living in the land who were like giants. They were mighty warriors in Canaan, and they were called the, the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim mentioned in Numbers aren't the same ones mentioned here in Genesis 6, because the group in Genesis 6 died in a flood. So they're not connected in that way. I think the best way to understand this is that the term in Genesis 6 of Nephilim is simply describing a group of people that were larger, mightier, stronger, perhaps like giants, likely warriors that were spreading violence on the earth. And this theme of of giant warriors, it may sound familiar to you in the story of the Old Testament. Giant warriors that opposed God and God's people David and Goliath, right? We see Goliath, this giant. So I think it's best understood here just marking off mighty men who were opposing God, spreading violence, and using this as a marker, saying in the days of the Nephilim, that's when the sins of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the spread of wickedness was taking place. 
Now these details in, chap- in the first four verses, they may have different interpretations amongst Christians. However, wherever you land on those interpretations, whatever camp you're in, the, genes- the story of Genesis moves forward with one basic idea. Wickedness is spreading. Corruption is growing. Disobedience to God and evil is reaching a height. But make no mistake, God was in control. He was reigning and ruling from on high in a world that seemed to be out of control. Sin spreading, people dying, wickedness being practiced, people rebelling against God in a world out of control. God so clearly in this passage is seen to be in control. He would limit the spread of sin. He would limit the extent of wickedness on the face of the earth. He was so gracious to bring those limitations about. In other words, he was not a passive onlooker. He wasn't standing back thinking, man, Seth and Cain just made a mess out of all this. What am I going to do now? He was reigning and ruling, not caught off guard, demonstrating patience, not leaving the guilty unpunished, but at the same time reigning, ruling, working his plan of redemption. And brother and sister in Christ, that should bring us comfort. Don't forget Genesis. It's a book of comfort. That's what Moses intended to do in writing this to the original audience, to comfort them, to strengthen their faith, to trust God. And it should comfort us this morning that as we experience the effects of a wicked world around us, as we struggle in Christ, we've been freed from the power of sin as we thought about on Easter, but we still struggle so regularly with sin and need to confess our sins before God, but we should not despair. God will not allow wickedness to endure. He never has. He never will, and that brings us comfort. Well, the second consideration of God's judgment and his grace we find in verses 5 through 7. Second consideration, God sees the heart and is grieved over sin. God sees the heart and is grieved over sin. Verses 5 through 7, they form a a type of parallel passage with what we just read in verses 1 through 4. We saw the wickedness of humanity in verses 1 and 2. And here in verse 5, we find another description of the wickedness of humanity. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God sees the intentions and thoughts of our hearts Only he can see that. Sometimes we act like we can see that. Sometimes we act like we know other people's motivations and the intent of their heart. That's called judging people. We can't know the intent of their hearts. We can ask them, what did you mean by that? What was your motivation in that? But we can't know that. But God always does. God knows everything. And here in verse 5, as he looks and sees into the hearts of people, all he saw was great wickedness. Now contrast that with the language that we heard over and over again in Genesis chapter 1 in creation. What God saw in Genesis chapter 1, it was good. God saw it was good, and it was good, it was good, it was very good. All he saw was good, his goodness in creation. Here in chapter 6, verse 5, a very different sight. What God saw in that day on the earth was the great wickedness of the human race. Now a word that stands out in verse 5 is, is intention. 
That makes it ever so clear. It's not like people in this time, well, well, you know, they were trying. I mean, they meant well. They just didn't have enough of an education. They didn't know enough about things. They just needed to try a little bit harder. They were simply messing up. They were falling short. No, the intense, the intention of their heart was set on evil. Verse 5, communicating evil in very strong terms. I mean, three other words that stand out in verse 5. Every, only, and continually. This is language that's not leaving room for a good effort. I just fell a little bit short. I mean, think about this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a picture of total corruption. The problem in that day was evil hearts. Hearts set against God. Hearts opposed to God and his will, rebelling against him and breaking his commandments. Hearts that turned away from God. Now, what are we to make of this? I mean, is this just an example of some really bad people? I mean, were people just way worse back then in Noah's time? Do we, do we look back and think, man, Seth's line and Cain's line, man, people were wiling out back then. I mean, these were bad people. Like, these were the people mom told you to stay away from in high school. They're no good. Stay away from them. Right? You tried to act like you weren't one of them back in high school, probably. No, what we see here, it's a picture of corruption, and I think certainly while we see an excess, and we may see an excess of wickedness in that day, the language of verse 5, the level of depravity, the level of corruption, the same can be said about fallen, sinful people today. We started off the time reading through Romans chapter 3, verse, verse 9, starting there, and the picture we get in the Bible, from start to finish, of fallen humanity, Fallen, sinful man, corrupt to the core. Ephesians 2.1, dead in your sins. Dead, nothing good, no, no life, nothing to offer, completely dead and need to be rescued and saved. Romans 3, starting in verse 9 that we read earlier, the Apostle Paul, what he said concerning the condition of mankind. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that man, fallen, sinful, unregenerate man, is corrupt to the core, totally depraved. God sees that heart, and God will judge wickedness. But before his judgment's pronounced here in this passage, we find something interesting that Moses mentions about God in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Down at the end of verse 7, we also read, For I am sorry that I have made them. Now what do we make of, of this? Uh, did, did God make a mistake in creating people? Was he surprised? Was he caught off guard? I mean, did, did people just let him down and all of a sudden he regretted creating mankind? Absolutely not. That is not what is going on here in this passage. What we see is that God was thoroughly displeased, to say the least, with the wickedness of humanity. And we have language describing human emotion that is communicating God's position on this. So it's common in the Old Testament to, to find language used that, that describes human descriptions to God. 
Right? So sometimes God is spoken of as having body parts. We even see that in this passage, God's heart in verse 6. Uh, down in verse 8, the eyes of the Lord. We have other passages that tell us about the hand of God. Well, God is invisible. He's not a man. He sees, but he doesn't have an eyeball like you and I do. He provides, and he has a providential hand, but it's not a hand like what we have attached to our bodies. He has a heart, but it's not the same type of heart we've got beating inside of us right now. We have language used in the Bible about God with human descriptions to help communicate to us truth about God and what he is like. But we also see language in the Bible describing God as having human emotions. So there's sometimes human body parts, and sometimes, like here, human emotions. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7 with this description of, of God regretting and being grieved and being sorrowful about things. But just like God doesn't have human body parts, he doesn't have human emotions. Right? So, so you and I, we find ourselves often regretting things, things we've said, things that we've done, things we ought to have done, things we ought not to have done. That's our experience as humans regularly. But for God to have regret, think about it, it implies he would have made a mistake. He needed plan B. He needed to rethink this, re-engineer, rework what he initially created. It also mean that he, he changed. And we just see ever so clearly that God's not like us. He doesn't change. He isn't a man. Elsewhere in the Pentateuch, Moses conveyed this very truth. Numbers chapter 23, <clears throat> verse 19. Moses wrote this, God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God's not a man. He doesn't change his mind like you and I do. We also read in 1 Samuel 15, 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So very clearly, God wasn't surprised by any of the wickedness that has spread on earth. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He wasn't caught off guard. He doesn't have regret the way you and I do. So you're like, okay, great. You just told me this says regret, but it's not regret. That's confusing. What do I do with that? I get it. This is hard. What do we make of this language in verse 6 through 7? Track with me here. The, the most helpful way I've heard this explained is that God doesn't have passions, but he has affections. Passions show passivity being affected by an outside force. This, reg this regret, this grief, this sorrow that God was experiencing is not describing a, a passion of God being affected by an outside force, but, but rather this language is a way of communicating God's anger and his deep displeasure with sin. The fancy term for this is this is anthropopathic language. What that means, anthropopathic language, is the language of human emotion to communicate truth about God. Communicating truth about God in a way that you and I can relate to and that we can even feel. So to get to the truth that's being communicated here, because you can go a lot of wrong ways if you start to act like God the Father can suffer like we suffer today. That's just not true about God. That the way you can get to the truth of what's being communicated here, wade through the language of human emotion, Strip away emotions and experiences that don't belong to God as God. And consider what you have left here. It is a simple truth. God was terribly displeased and angered with the wickedness of mankind. At the same time, we don't want to strip this away. 
Moses said grief. Right? So we want to make sure we're clear about who God is, how he's different from us. But what did Moses, what was he trying to communicate by this? I think at least it means this. God is not an uninterested onlooker. He's not just reigning on high and thinking, yeah, I knew Seth was going to do that. Yep, exactly what I told you was going to happen. No, he, he's not an uninterested onlooker. He is deeply involved with people that he created. This type of language shows that God is not merely watching everything in an uninterested manner. He is not uninvolved in the world that he created. If you're ever tempted to think that, Genesis 6 helps us see ever so clearly God is not uninvolved in the world that he created. He doesn't sit back and just passively dismiss wickedness and hold it to no account. While God is not in the mess that we are in, the mess in this world is not his fault. He is not responsible for evil. He is not the author of evil. That's the fault of sinful man. Sin came from Adam, death through Adam. While God is not responsible for the mess that we are in, he rules and he reigns over it as one intimately involved in our mess. Deeply involved, deeply caring, and then blessing his people with his presence in the midst of this mess that we might persevere. That we might know his comfort, working for his glory and the good of his people. So if you come in this Sunday crushed by the effects of sin in this world, and my goodness, what have we seen on the news so recently? All over the place, wickedness, murder, evil. Lots of different things you might have experienced that never make the news. Some of you are, are mourning the loss of loved ones, struggling with different things. I, I think it's clear this, God is not uninvolved. He is not uninterested. He sees everything. He knows everything. He is at work. He waited patiently in the days of Noah, but he wasn't just sitting there with his hands tied. He was waiting to work redemption, and God's still waiting today. Eventually, he will send Jesus back down to earth. Time will run out. He is waiting patiently today, bringing in people from every tribe and tongue and nation, redeeming and saving people for his own glory. One day he will put an end to all of wickedness, and we look forward to that day. Amen? Sin's a big deal to God. That's what we see here, verse 6. It's a big deal. In verse 7, we see his judgment pronounced and his plan revealed. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is judgment. God's going to blot out, totally destroy mankind, animals, everything. And you may look at this and wonder, what did the animals do? Why are the duck-billed platypus and the giraffe, like, what did they do? I understand what Seth and Cain, they're like, they were crazy, but what did these animals do? Well, it's just a picture here, all of creation affected by sin. Everything tainted and marred by sin. All of God's good creation. Everything he saw good in Genesis chapter 1. Here in chapter 6, 10 generations later, wickedness, evil. And God is just so gracious to not let wickedness endure. See, God's judgment on sin, his judgment on the world will be total. That's what this means. He's going to blot out everything. It wasn't like, hey, there's some high ground, and if you can get to the high ground, you'll survive the flood. No, God chose to show grace and favor to Noah and his family, but his judgment would be total. And that's a good thing because God was so gracious to not let wicked endure. He sees and knows everything, and he is actively working for redemption to make everything that's wrong right once again. 
You know, if we don't see sin as that big of a deal, then we do not understand the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. We will think that God's judgment is unnecessary or harsh or that there's really no accountability for sin against God unless we understand the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin is such a big deal to God that he sent Jesus to die for sin, to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus didn't just come to teach us good things and help us out, that we need a little bit of inspiration and help. No, we were totally dead in our sins in need of redemption and salvation. Jesus came to die. He came to sacrifice his life as the substitute lamb, the lamb of God. In him, the only one in whom we can find forgiveness for our sins. If sin wasn't that big of a deal, then why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't he just live a long time and have a long ministry and help lots of people out? That wasn't his ministry. His ministry was to come and to die and to pay for sin, to save and to redeem, to satisfy God's wrath and his judgment against sin, to give you a way out, to give you escape from the power of sin over you. And sin in the life of a Christian, it must continue to be a big deal. That moment you first believe God convicted you that your sin was no longer acceptable, that you shouldn't just continue to accommodate it and make excuses for it and act like it's not that big of a deal and live as if God's judgment is not coming. God convicted you by the power of his Holy Spirit. You put your faith in Jesus, clinging to the cross of Christ as the only means to find forgiveness of your sin against God. And brother and sister in the Lord, sin must continue to be a big deal for us in our lives. A good question to ask yourself is this, Christian, Are you increasingly mourning your sin against God? Does your sin still bother you today like it did on the day you first believed? Are you accommodating it in your life? Are you starting to revert back to the old person, living as if sin's not that big of a deal? God's word constantly calls us to confess our sins. And when we do, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray for your soul this week that you would grieve sin more and walk in repentance before God. And may we all have this takeaway. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, may we live our lives in a way that doesn't grieve God. May we be concerned about what He sees and hears and knows. This third consideration of God's judgment and grace, verse 8. Third consideration, God's grace saves you from judgment. God's grace saves you from judgment. God declared judgment on all of humanity. All of creation would be blotted out, but the passage ends with one finding grace. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is communicating grace. Noah found grace. God saved him. When we look at this section of Genesis, you know, all the questions we had to deal with earlier in verses 1 through 4 that make for good Bible trivia that I think we really need to give ourselves to trying to understand, it helps us understand those verses shouldn't overshadow what it was building up to, which is verse 8, the glory of God's grace in verse 8. God's grace is his unmerited favor. And that's what we see Noah finding here. He found favor in God's eyes. The 
only way to escape God's judgment for sin. The only way to escape his wrath against sin is by his grace. We are a people of God, and therefore we are a people of grace, created by his grace and to the praise of his glory and his grace. And sometimes people look at the story of Noah and think, well, yeah, Noah, like he was the one righteous guy that was alive at that time. And that's true. We'll see that next week. And Lord willing, in verse 9, we continue on, Noah was righteous. But that's not what verse 8 is focusing in on. This generation of Adam ends in verse 8. Where it leaves us sitting is on God's favor and on his grace. Noah was saved by grace. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. You're only saved by the grace of God. Now the first word we see in verse 8 reminds me of what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4. Verse 4, Ephesians 2 also begins with the word, but. Read there, but God being rich in mercy. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's communicating a turn, a, a transition. Here's what God is doing. Here's how gracious he is. Here's how sinful we are. Here's how good and gracious God is. Mankind was wicked, but God is just. God would execute his justice against his against mankind and indeed through the whole, against the whole world through the flood. And God is also merciful. But God is rich in mercy. And in God's mercy, Noah found favor. In the midst of a dark and wicked and corrupt world, one man found favor, one man with whom God was pleased. And while rest would come through Noah and salvation would come through Noah, Noah would go on to prove, as you read the story, he'd go on to prove he would not be the one from Eve's line to finally bring salvation. He would not be the one finally to crush the head of the serpent. One would come thousands of years after him, one with whom God was fully pleased. The beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, the beloved Son in whom God was well pleased. Jesus provides the only way to escape God's judgment for sin. By dying on the cross to pay for sin and Rising from the dead three days later, Jesus brought God's saving grace. He brought this grace not just to one person, but to all who would believe. To every tribe and tongue and nation, this message of salvation goes out. Noah got to bring his family on the ark. Those on the ark saved from the wrath and judgment of God, preserved by God's grace. Those outside of the ark under the wrath and judgment of God and destroyed. Jesus is better than Noah and that all who turn and trust in him are saved from God's wrath, from his coming judgment. In the days of Noah, there was a great judgment. That's what was being warned here in verse 7. But there is another judgment that Jesus warned of that is yet to come, that everyone will face. When Christ returns, there will be a judgment. You can read more in Matthew chapter 25. He will separate the sheep, those who know him, from the goats, from those who do not know him. And, and Jesus, when he was talking about, actually leading up to talking about this judgment, he referenced the days of Noah. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, here's what Jesus said about his second coming, about the final judgment. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He referenced the days of Noah when he spoke about his second coming. You see, Jesus came the first time as a lamb, as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. When he returns, he will not return as a lamb. It's already taken care of. The second time, he will return as a lion. He will come to do away with all wickedness, to finally and fully defeat Satan and sin and death. And for Christians, as terrible as that judgment will be, we find comfort because that's the day when Jesus gathers us together as his people to finally be with them. That's the day when we will survive by the grace of God, the judgment of God, because we've been covered by the blood of the Lamb. We've been redeemed and saved by his grace. The one that came and crushed the head of the serpent, his work will finally be known and consume everything and everyone. And the message here is ever so clear. The only way to escape God's judgment for sin and find favor with the God who created you is to repent and believe in Jesus. If you are here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, we are so glad you've come today. But don't leave here today thinking just throw the bulletin away and go home and carry on about your weekend. God is giving you a moment right now to know the truth. He will judge you one day. You are not good enough on your own merits to withstand that judgment. Your only hope is to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. His death for sin. It's what every member of this church professes. We do not profess we are the really good people in Charlotte and everyone else is out there acting crazy. That's not what we think. We think this, the blood of the lamb saved my soul and he'll save you too if you turn and trust in him. Talk to someone today that would share more with you about that. One of our members who brought you, we'll be at the guest tent afterwards. This is the day for you to get right with God by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And Christian, this is another day, another Sunday morning where we find comfort. We find comfort today in how much God has saved us from in Jesus. We have a great Redeemer. Why do we have such joyful gatherings? We celebrate Christ. We know what he saved us from. We know what he did in our lives. We profess there was nothing good in us. Our righteous deeds did not save us. If they could, then Christ would have died needlessly, is what the Apostle Paul says. But we praise and we rejoice that we've been saved. We've been redeemed. And the same one who saved us, he will keep us into the end. Our hope is found in Christ. May we close out our time being comforted and the hope and the power and the love and the forgiveness we've been so graciously shown by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow and pray. Father, we pray that we would not leave Your Word unaffected. You're not just a passive onlooker with sin. And God, we pray we wouldn't be either. God, for those who are in Christ this morning, God, may, may we leave here both comforted by the truth of Your Word, but but also bothered by sin in our lives in such a way that we would confess it and repent and walk away from it. And for those here who don't know you this morning, may they see the urgency of the need to turn and repent and trust in Jesus Christ today. Lord, we confess as a church that all we have is Christ. Remind us of that truth. Comfort us with that joy as we leave today. In Christ's name, amen.
Amen. As those who are in Christ, as those who are in Christ, we find comfort in God's love and in the grace that's found in Jesus. We're reminded of that as we receive this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent prayer and reflection. And when the music plays, our ushers will be there to dismiss you by rest.